Bonnie and I discuss rethinking assessment and other reflections on the Lilly Conference on this episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hi there, it's Dave Stahoviak, and I am back for another episode with Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, Dave. I'm crashing your party here and uh, jumping in as the host for a session, or at least a co-host. Yes, I was going to say, you you don't have the intro memorized, I see. So I had to, I'm sitting across the, the desk from you. I'm laughing because we just recorded your podcast, and now we have switched sides of the desk. And it's like if I get in the car and try to drive the car with your settings of the mirrors and the seats and all that and forget to change it, that's what it feels like right now because it's all cattywampus from what I'm used to. But I'm so glad to be sitting across from you. We actually have not seen much of each other the last couple of weeks. We've been like two ships passing in the night. I'm just still impressed that you worked in the word cattywampus into a <laughs> into an intro of a podcast, <laughs> trying to figure out how I can use that word later today. But here we are, and you were not here, speaking of being present, last week very much because you were at the Lilly Conference. That's true. I attended the Lilly Conference, which is a teaching conference that is put on all over the country. I believe there are five or so different locations where the Lilly Conference is put on. And this one, the director is Todd Sakrisik, who has been on the show a few times actually before. And it was lovely to see him and also to get to see another person who's been on the show a couple times now, and that is Stephen Brookfield. So how was the conference? Oh, it was was an excellent conference. All kinds of people that either I got to reconnect with because I had met them previously or met for the first time, or there was a little funny thing. It occasionally happens where someone listens to the show a lot and then they feel, because when I went up, they did this little icebreakery thing. And so I went up and talked to this woman. She's like, your voice sounds so familiar to me. I can't place it. And then she looked at my name tag. She's like, oh my gosh, it's you. <laughs> 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 the session was over. She wanted to take a picture with me. And in case anyone's interested, I don't love having my picture taken. So I was like, okay, cringing. Just, okay, here we go. And then later on, she was with another man and he's holding his cell phone like, oh, there she is. There she is. And I was like, okay, another picture. And he didn't want a picture. He just wanted to know how to download the show. <laughs> so it was a little bit awkward. <laughs> Awesome. But he didn't even really know. He was just happy to. You know, both of them are probably listening right now. And they're thinking that that she's such a nice lady. Well, it was nice to meet them and nice to meet other people. It's I just love because the show is all about talking to people about things I'm so passionate about. So whenever you get to meet someone, it's fun. But they're just cute because sometimes they're a little like, I don't know, like I was when we we actually went to the podcasting conference, you and I, Dave, last year. And that was when I got to see Alex Bloomberg. And <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, go talk to him. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I just stood about 15 feet from him in awe of all that he is. That's I really did try. I normally try to not to be controlling of you, but I really was trying to get you to go talk to him because I knew how much you wanted to. And mm-hmm. Alex, if you're listening, Bonnie would like to say hi. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he is listening. Probably. Sure. He's not listening to Teaching Higher Ed. 
But there was a lot of other things on a serious note that happened at this conference. For those who are, you said a little bit about the Lilly conference, but you've had um, Todd and some of the folks on the show before who have been at this conference. Why did you decide to go and what what were you there to do? Well, my colleague Naomi and I, we gave a presentation on rethinking assessment for greater agency and relevance. And so that was, I think it was her first academic conference. I think it was her first time. It's it's not a discipline specific conference, but I think it was her first time presenting. I'm not positive. Sorry, Naomi, if I get that wrong, but she is certainly a consummate professional. She designed our PowerPoint. It's not a PowerPoint. It was a keynote, but (laughs) she designed the slide deck and she designed this amazing handout, which was really just a, a way for people to reflect on how they can put into practice what we discussed. And she is such a gifted designer and a gifted teacher. It was really wonderful to collaborate with her. So that was fun. She's also the genius behind the teaching and higher ed website, the new design too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the website, you'll see a link to over to her website, which she actually just recently redesigned her website too. She's got a portfolio up there and everything. Yeah. But we, we were happy to get to share about this. And actually, Dave, I thought I'd share a little bit about what we what we shared on assessment, although maybe one of these days I'll even get Naomi <laughs> to come on the show. But um, we talked about really agency as the power to act and how I actually shared a story about Hannah, our daughter. And as you well know, Dave, she just turned three a couple weeks ago. And it's like someone woke her up that morning and said, this is your time to demand agency. In life. <laughs> <laughs> it really did happen that morning, too. <laughs> and it's interesting because you think about you can get into where you you and I don't ever act on this. I shouldn't say ever, but once in a blue moon to try to have one of them not run in the street, we might physically force them to stay out of the street. But we really think consciously about trying to have that be practically never, that we physically force them to either do something or not do something. And our exception is safety. And I think we've, I think we've managed to, <laughs> I think we've managed to hit that mark. I, I, I just am having this flashback to getting smoothies for the kids this morning after I took them to their doctor's appointment and both of our kids crawling up onto the shelves in the smoothie place and physically pulling them off. Hmm. So I suppose there's an argument to be made there that that was probably the appropriate decision. At you had the time. another bad trip to the smoothie place because I don't know that we should share on air what happened the last time you took them to the uh, smoothie place. Yeah, we haven't had good luck at smoothie places, although it's very unusual. Normally we are very hmm. good when we visit other places, but the last week has not been great. So in terms of little kids, when you're talking about three-year-olds, you generally aren't going to have very positive experiences if you try to, for example, force them to brush their teeth. You and I have not tried that, (laughs) but I'm guessing that wouldn't produce very good results. There's that expression about if you wrestle with the pig, both of you end up dirty and... Uh, The pig likes it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I I haven't tried that with Hannah, but what we have found really works is to give her a choice. Did you want to use the Elsa toothbrush or did you want to use the Paw Patrol toothbrush? And that instantly changes the conversation. And if she doesn't want to get dressed, it becomes less about you have to get dressed and more about, well, did you want to wear this in her case? this Paw Patrol shirt or this other Paw Patrol shirt or maybe another Paw Patrol shirt. Yeah. So uh, giving her choices really helps. And I certainly would hope it would never sound like I was comparing our three-year-old daughter to my students, but let me compare my students to myself and say I am hugely 
more more motivated when I have autonomy, when I have freedom, and especially in my own learning to have that kind of agency to be able to explore those things that for me are most interesting. And Josh Eiler, when he was back on the show, Josh Eiler is the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Rice University. He and I got to have a conversation, gosh, it must have been more than a year ago, about our favorite Pixar movies and which ones we thought had really good things to say about teaching. And in that episode, he said, curiosity is one of our most deeply rooted mechanisms by which we learn. And I say he's absolutely so spot on. And we also talked a little bit about what assessment is and how there's, we tend to think of assessment of just at the end, did they get it or did they not get it? But there's more formative assessments that happen throughout the learning process where we can gauge not just are the students comprehending it, but is there something that we need to be altering in our own teaching process in order to meet them where they are. There can be interim assessment methods where we're kind of, I mean, you might think of it like a midterm or something like that, just checking in midway through and then summative toward the end. And we came up with a taxonomy and all of this will be available in the show notes. So you can go look at the slides that Naomi designed. It's going to be at teachinginhigheredcom slash lilycon. 17. But again, we'll put a link to that in today's show notes. But looking at the different degrees of agency, because oftentimes when we start talking about having more agency in assessment methods, it starts to immediately go, wait a minute. That sounds hard. (laughs) And the fact is that sometimes it can be harder up front to set things up, but you might actually find it's even maybe easier along the way because you don't have to fight so much against apathy because people you really if you help ignite their curiosity and give them that autonomy you might be able to fuel past some more difficult challenges you might otherwise encounter and both Naomi and I believe that even though we may encounter these difficulties that ultimately it's so worth it it's so worth it to be able to do that so we looked at different degrees of agency though because we'd want to be able to say, well, can we just dip our toe and try it a little bit? And then there's some real extreme examples, which actually go beyond anything she and I have ever tried. But we invited, we invited, I say, I put air quotes, we invited air quotes, (laughs) some of the past podcast guests on to share about some of these more extreme methods of assessments. And Dave, I don't know if you remember Linda Nilsson, but she was on and she talked about something called specifications grading. Do you remember that from long ago? Mm, I recognize her name, but I'm not sure I recognize the uh, the topic. So Linda Nelson has written a book on specifications grading, and she's really the expert. And she came on back in episode 29, so it's been a while, and shared about this is really a way where we can do away almost entirely with the quibbling over points and was it a B or a B minus or a B plus, that type of thing. And the whole entire class almost becomes pass or fail, except instead of it being truly pass or fail, like some institutions have some of our courses, it's just more, oh, I want to earn an A. Well, these are the specifications I would have to meet on this number of assignments in order to earn an A. And you set out in the very beginning, oh, I want to earn a B. 
these are the specifications I'd have to meet in order to attain a B with this type of assignments. And so she talked about this a little bit back in number in episode number 29. And I'm going to play a quick clip from her sharing a bit more about specifications grading. But if anyone listening is interested in learning more, I'd say definitely go check out her book or check out episode 29. Or also, Robert Talbert has written extensively about his experience with specifications on the Chronicle of Higher Ed website. But here's Linda Nelson on episode number 29. Students are graded pass-fail on individual assignments and tests and also on bundles or modules, I'm going to call them bundles, of individual assignments and tests. And I'll explain those later. But in any case, students earn full credit or no credit, depending on whether their work meets the specifications, the specs, that you laid out for that piece of work. No partial credit. And passing does not mean, you know, getting a C or C minus level. No, no, no. And this is where we restore rigor. You make pass a B-level quality of work. If you want, you can make it A-level quality of work. But whatever it is, you are raising the standards just, just for students to get credit. The key for us, and this is a key ingredient of specs grading, is that we, as instructors, have to provide very clear and very detailed specs and even models when necessary for what constitutes passing, acceptable piece of work. You might think of specs as a one-level rubric, and some assignments might be, the, the specs might be as simple as, you know, completeness, like all the questions are answered, all the problems attempted or set up in good faith, the work satisfies the assignment, and other specs are going to be more complex, of course, like a description of the characteristics of good literature review or the content of each section of a proposal. So you've got to write these specs clearly and carefully, but all the work's up front. For the students, it's all or nothing. It's no sliding by, no blowing off the directions, no betting on partial credit for sloppy last-minute work. Another ingredient is students are allowed at least one opportunity to revise an unacceptable piece of work, or they can start a course with a limited number of, quote, tokens, virtual tokens, that they can exchange to revise a piece of work or drop it or to submit a work, a piece of work late to get an extension, like 24 hours. So there are second chances and some flexibility built into this, but not a lot. Bonnie, when I think about courses I've taught in the past uh, as an adjunct, I think one of the biggest challenges that I had, and I know it probably a lot of the audience has too, is just taking the time to invest up front to do all that. And it's like anything of in, in teaching and writing a syllabus, planning, planning for a class. And I think about it from the standpoint of leadership as well too. A lot of leaders, of course, make mistakes when delegating or trying to motivate employees to do things because they don't really think through in advance, like how do I spend the time to frame what my expectations are and to really delegate appropriately. And, and they miss the principle in leadership, which is a lot of the work is up front. It's not the it's not the time that the employee is engaging on the work. And so I think there's some parallels here too of just a challenge for all of us to be thinking more intentionally about how we design courses, but also to be willing to look at that time before the class as being work too. Um, and maybe, like you said, when you do that well, you actually not only create a better experience for the students, but you also probably save yourself a lot of frustration along the way during the semester. One of the things we shared about were some of what we called in our taxonomy more incremental methods. 
So even Naomi, she has a very, very small stakes assignment for her history of cinema course, American cinema, I believe it is. And just even giving them a choice of what format of notes they would like to submit. And she's got samples of those. So she's established up front what her expectations are, but it's very minimal choice. But still the fact that they can then demonstrate that they have accomplished those small goals of taking notes is is helpful. And then we even talked a little bit, um, she does this in terms of having students do journals. And I do it in terms of having students do blogs. And I talked a little bit about my doctoral class, how I've evolved their blogs over time. Early on, when this program first launched, and I started teaching in it, I would have them blog about the textbook. And that was the way that I could show, oh, look, we're learning how to use WordPress. We're learning a little bit about blogs. We're learning even down to just what's the difference between a page and a post. Technical things, but also so much more comes out of it. People have to reflect on who am I? And I've, I've blogged about that recently. Who are we as our digital selves? And the kinds of questions that come up. But one of the failures I saw myself as having was trying to couple too many things together for that kind of an assignment that really became very high stakes, which to me, if you told me to write a blog, not a problem about a textbook, what else did you want me to write about, you know, but there were so many barriers to it that as soon as I switched it to be, they can create a blog to suit any purpose, including they could create a blog that's from a pseudonym and no one ever has to know who they are. It's not required that they actually use their own name or any identifying characteristic. So that really turned out well. And those are things that you can do, Dave, in really small ways. You don't have to completely revamp your class to just allow a little bit more autonomy on things like that. Kind of goes back to what James Ling has said before on the show, small teaching, you know, do something, start with something, make a small, I mean, we see so much of this in the literature now and in the popular media on habits and making, making a small change you can get some success on early on. Um, make a tweak, and then that builds momentum for you to do things later on. And I think that's one of the challenges um, that we should all take on is be willing to try a few of these things in the next class, maybe even the current class we're instructing so that we try something and do something different. And, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But if it works great, if it doesn't, that's data. You know, To quote Anissa Ramirez, that's data on what does not work. And so try something else that will work. And then a couple other methods that we shared about was what I call choose your own adventure assessment. And that is some of the points are fixed so that we make sure that the learning outcomes are addressed. In my case, okay, you have to take at least three of the five tests that are going to be administered this semester. But then from there, they get to choose, would you rather write a paper to demonstrate learning? Would you rather give a presentation? Would you rather go out and interview some business owners and come back and talk about that. I mean, we give them some choice to be able to demonstrate the learning. But one exception to that, if you're teaching a writing class, then you don't give the choice to give a presentation. So you want to make sure that whatever the learning outcomes are, they're still being supported. But assuming it isn't a writing class, then what's wrong with giving them the choice between a presentation or some other exploratory way of demonstrating their learning? And um, one of the things, of course, is that things can get messy in terms of grading, but things can always get messy in terms of grading, whether or not. I mean, there's we've talked before, actually, Dave and Dave, you and I have shared on the show about even just how grading essay questions on an exam can be problematic and we have to really watch ourselves and put things into place to make sure that our grading is as fair as it really can be. 
and and I won't go back and revisit some of those things, but I mean, it's worth it to me to have the potential for muddy grading, then I can quantify it a little bit better in terms of describing the expectations and grading that way. But boy, it's really remarkable what happens when you just set a class on fire by infusing it with autonomy and agency. It's so, so fun. And really the most inspirational thing to me that's come out of the show's past episodes is the example that we had from Thea Wolf back on episode 101. Thea is from Chico State. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I would say go back and listen. She is phenomenal. And one of the things she described, which I'd never heard of this before, is public sphere pedagogy. And it's this idea that one of the ways I can give agency, I don't have to change a single thing I'm doing other than bring in someone from outside the classroom to reflect and and observe and give feedback. I did this last semester in my introduction to business class. I had for years, you know, I've taught this class for 13 years and I've never brought in outside business professionals. So I changed it up. That's the one thing I changed. And it would be like I changed the entire class. It was amazing. Mm. It was absolutely amazing. It's just, we talk about saying, gosh, if it, why does it always have to be about the grades and the points? Why can't it just be about learning? It was so fabulous. So here is Thea Wolf on episode 101, talking a little bit more about public sphere pedagogy, this idea of what happens when we take the classroom and it goes, our learning goes out in display, out to the public. Here she is. I would argue that these experiences give students a different view of themselves. And when we ask them to do research and writing and reading in college, even though we're asking them to do this in more sophisticated ways than they did it in high school, they don't necessarily feel a powerful motivation to do that work. And they don't necessarily feel feel that the work has a great deal to do with them and who they are becoming. So when they go public with the work, they have to stand by it. And really remarkable things happen. We have a lot of student writing we've read over the years where they reflect on these experiences. And they write things like, now I know why my parents like to have these kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. Now I see what research is for. Oh, I thought that my peers were kind of lazy and didn't want to do anything in the world. But now I see there are lots of people like me who are interested in something important. Or now I see that even though as a person alone, I can't make a difference, I can make a difference with other people who care about these things. So there's, you know, these, this new way of seeing the self. And this is where I think we've missed the boat so often is that we don't give students opportunities to experience and reflect on how the curriculum is part of them and they are affecting it. You've had so many great guests on the show, Bonnie. I, I remember Thea specifically. Uh, in fact, I even, is this weird? I remember where I was driving when I heard that episode <laughs> because I was listening to it on the road. And I just was so impressed at what they're doing at Chico State in being able to 
really bring learning in in a practical way. And I love what they've done. And I just, uh, it just reminded me of all the wonderful lessons from them. So I want to also ask you about some of the other uh, presentations you attended at this conference and, and in addition to your presentation. Um, and one of them, I believe, was from Stephen Brookfield, who's been on the show twice before. And you saw him speak. What did he have to say? Well, one of the things I just laughed about is that Naomi, who was with me at the conference, she's the one who presented with me. And also we were conference buddies <laughs> and she's never seen him speak. And I don't believe she heard him on the podcast either. So he was just completely fresh. And he's, it's such a dichotomy because here's this seemingly formal British man. I mean, anyone with a British accent seems formal. To me. You know, he's, you just expect formality, I guess. And then he brings up on his PowerPoint picture and references his band, which is the 99, 99ers band. And so he brings up on his PowerPoint, the 99ers, and then he's got a picture of his band and Naomi in her head. I, I did not know this about her, but apparently, I don't know if she loves punk or just knows the genre or whatever, but she was, she's like, it better be, it better be real punk. It better be like it, the real, <laughs> the real stuff. And I was laughing because anyone who is around the same age as me, my idea of punk is this band called the Toy Dolls from the 80s. And they're like, not real punk if, if he had started playing like a like a Nelly the elephant like a totally jolly like sort of punk she would not have been satisfied so he played a little audio clip in fact I may looks like it's here I know he won't care because he likes to get word out about his band so let me play a little bit of, of exactly what Naomi heard when she got to hear his real band play I have to say our sound quality today is far better than poor Stephen had the day at the conference. But anyway, he introduced himself a bit. And then his whole presentation was wrapped around teaching as becoming. And if you've ever heard him speak before or you've read any of his books, he's written over 20 books about teaching. He is so in touch with himself and so willing to be authentic. And I, what I love about how he framed the entire talk was that he's not done yet. He's been teaching for decades. He's been doing this a long time and yet he's not done yet. He is still becoming, he's becoming pedagogically. And he says here, improving technical command of pedagogy, assessment, curriculum development. He is still becoming ontologically. That is understanding the essential nature of being a teacher. He is still becoming politically negotiating to survive and subvert in an organization run as a corporation or as a bureaucracy. He is still becoming emotionally. He's still learning how to endure the emotional roller coaster and feelings of failure in his teaching. And lastly, he is still becoming racially, understanding the way his own racial identity significantly frames his teaching practice. And he talks about in each one of these, just how he is still becoming. And it's just beautiful because he, of course, weaves in so much wisdom. He has been doing this a long time. He's an exquisite teacher. Of course, he has wonderful things to share. And yet he's not done. And it's so wonderful just to hear from someone else and go, ah, oh, 
I'm not done yet either. <laughs> I feel like so much of a failure when I'm not done yet. But here's someone else who's such an exquisite teacher and so gifted. And yet he isn't done yet either. Maybe it's okay that I'm not done. Maybe it's okay that I'm still becoming. And it was so wonderful. And in fact, as of this recording at this moment, Dave, <laughs> I have sitting upstairs on my screen, a blog post that I am about to wrap up just on the on becoming racially. So I talk a little bit about attending the conference, but most of the post is on becoming racially. As you can imagine, Dave, a really hard post to write because I'm admitting some things that I don't like about how I am becoming. But part of that to me is being willing to be vulnerable and say, I'm still becoming, I still fail. And one of the things, actually, I won't go too much because the blog post goes into a lot more depth, but when it comes to the race and ethnicity pieces of it, he talks about normalizing racism, which at first I'm like, oh, like, what are you saying? What are you saying? That doesn't sound good. I, there's enough normalizing going on in this world. But what he means, and I don't, it's always dangerous when he's not here to respond. And by the way, Stephen and I did talk about him coming back on the show specifically to talk about that on becoming racially, so he can explain it for himself. But what I took away was just that we need to be able to name things. So when we can name racism that Dave, there's racism in you, Bonnie, there's racism in me, that when we can name those things, then he says we can move beyond shame and guilt because shame and guilt doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, if shame and guilt gets us to action and a change of behavior and a change of perspective and having more empathy, then have all the shame and guilt you want. But the danger that we see happen so much is we just get stuck in the shame and the guilt. And then the shame and the guilt separates us from those who are different than us. And so again, that word normalizing was one where I thought it's a paradox. I both want us to normalize and don't all at the same time. But anyway, for each one of these areas, pedagogy, ontologically, politically, emotionally, racially, he had such powerful things to say. And I, at the end of it, I was, I felt like crying and laughing and he's just, he's wonderful. But then I thought, will you come on and talk about every single one of those and just do a five bonus episode all Stephen Brookfield. But I think that maybe might be a little bit too much of an invitation. So I'll just start with the uh, racially and see where we go from there. <laughs> Sounds awesome. I, uh, <clears throat> I wish I could have been there to hear it. And it, uh, it, I'm looking forward to hearing that conversation because I think there's so much, I mean, you've talked about it on the show so beautifully several times. And there's so much going on in our society, of course, right now. And also, there are some positives coming out of it, too, in that we're having more conversations about this as a society and how it relates to a lot of the work many of us do, and specifically in the classroom. So it's it's uh, it's going to be really, unfortunately, it's going to be interesting to watch as time goes on here. But I'm, I'm really glad that you're engaging in this as well. Do you have anything else you want to add before we go on and look at our recommendations? Or are you ready to recommend? Let's recommend away. Let's recommend. Yay. Well, I was so pleased to listen recently to a Teach Better podcast. This is with Doug McKee and Edward O'Neill. And they talked with a guy named Steve Pond, who's at Cornell. And the episode was called Teaching with Jazz. And it was so much fun to listen to. But one of the things that made it particularly fun to listen to is that they had different pieces of music that were played. And you know me, Dave, I'm always looking for (laughs) some kind of music to play before class. And this one totally got stuck in my head. And so I started playing it before a couple of classes. And if you want to get students toes tapping... This is something that totally, in my experience, does the trick beyond uh, most songs that I might play before class. Here you go. 
And thanks to Doug and Edward for this great reminder of this old tune. And now that will be the only thing that plays on the soundtrack in my mind for the rest of today and possibly potentially on to tomorrow. But it's okay because we have our accrediting body that's visiting this week. So, you know, it'll be good that I have a little extra energy, a little zip in my step while I go through those accrediting (laughs) meetings tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, a nice quiet week for you, huh? Oh, it's a super quiet week. Nothing's (laughs) going on. My recommendation is an article that I heard about on a different podcast, and it is, I believe it's a Slate article, and I'm not going to do a good job of pronouncing the author's last name, Nawanvu, I think, um, Ozita is the first name, and the article is titled, Worried About the Direction of Our Government? Do Something About It, Run for Office. We'll get a link in the show notes. I thought this was a really great article of, if you're not happy with how things are going, do something about it. And I'm hearing in a lot of circles, um, clients, personal situ- personal relationships, Bonnie, recently, of there's a lot of discontent about, you know, certainly what's going on nationally in the government and politics and news and all that. Um, what I what I rarely hear is, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm going to do to advocate. Here's what I'm going to do to take action. Here's what I'm going to do to educate myself. And I'm f- I'm hearing a lot of people kind of uh, what did you say earlier where you kind of get in that paralyzed state of not doing anything? And and this article was just a really good way of like, okay, here's what you can do. <laughs> and it may not literally be running for office, but there was just some really good action item things in there. And so uh, I'd recommend that as, a, as an inspirational read for those who are so inclined. That sounds great. I haven't read it yet. And I think maybe I hesitated to read, read it because I thought it was if I wasn't going to run for office, then forget it, you know, so it I'll go, I'll check it out. Definitely. And thanks for the recommendation. You're welcome. And Dave, if you want to end our show, I'm going to start the theme music and let you sort of round us out today. I would love to. If you would like to learn more about the resources we mentioned in today's episode, including all the slides from Bonnie's presentation, go to teachinginhighered.com slash 142, right, Bonnie? And that will have everything there along with all the links with everything we've mentioned. And if you haven't already subscribed to Bonnie's weekly update, you can get that by going to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. You will get the article that Bonnie writes every week on teaching or productivity. Also, the show notes from every episode. So that's an easy way to get access to all those. And plus, the first time you join, you'll get the downloadable PDF on 19 different educational technology tools you can use in your classroom that Bonnie put together a while back. So uh, you can find all that again at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thanks, Bonnie, again, for letting me be part of the show. Thanks for being here, Dave. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time. 